Thank you, Kenneth. Good morning, church. If you're, uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, we're working through a sermon series on the life of King David, and we're in 2 Samuel chapter 3 this morning, just taking this story one passage at a time. And if you are visiting with us this morning and you, um, you think that you might want to make Cherrydale your church home, I just want to take a minute to tell you that uh, we welcome that. We long for you to, to be a part of a local church. And if not this one, there are other great local churches in the area that we could recommend to you. So I just want to extend a warm welcome and thank you for coming. For those of you who are members, I want to encourage you to park off-site, not only for visitors who come, but also for the Thai Church of DC that meets downstairs during our service. Uh, it creates more parking spaces for, the, for their church family as well, and we want to be good hosts to them. So if you can... Consider parking off-site, and now I want to pray, and then let's turn to the Lord's Word in 2 Samuel chapter 3. Lord, I want to start this morning by acknowledging your goodness. You're a good God who can be trusted. You're a God who has a powerful hand who can do all that you please in history and in creation. You're a God who has spoken through your word. You're a God who has sent your Holy Spirit to live inside of your people and to take this word and to strengthen us through it. And we pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would lift up Christ in our gathering and that even in this passage with confusing and painful twists and turns, you would hold up Christ for us, the righteous King who will one day usher in an eternal kingdom where righteousness will reign forever. And we pray these things in the name of that righteous King, Jesus. Amen. Our passage this morning puts sinful opposition to God on the big screen in front of us. This whole section of 2 Samuel is concerned with showing us how David would ultimately become the king over all 12 tribes of Israel, a promise that God had made to David many years before while he was a shepherd in Bethlehem. And despite human sinful opposition, God's kingdom purposes, that is to make David king in the place of Saul, it will stand. David will take the throne. Each week we have a preaching meeting at 3 o'clock on Wednesdays, and this week Kristen Brown reminded me of Kathleen Nielsen's book, Women in God. And Kathleen Nielsen writes this, one of the most important parts of digging into Old Testament stories is our inevitable encounter with the depths of sin and sin's effects on the human race. It's hard to read Old Testament narratives, Old Testament true stories, and not see the depth of human sin on display. And we will see the depths, or at least some depths, of sin this morning. In fact, as we move through David's life, we'll see deeper dives into the depths of sin. But we don't have to look to 2 Samuel 3, we don't have to look to David's life to see the depths of human sin. The depths of sin and its effects on creation are on display all around us. From the earthquake in Turkey and Syria to West Coast droughts, to diseases and pandemics and premature deaths, 
from despicable Grammy performances to tragic violence in educational institutions to the war in Ukraine. Sin's effects are everywhere in creation and they're on full display. But we would be wrong to sit here or stand here and think that the problem exists out there someplace. The problem of sin beats in our own chests. We are the ones who oppose God. The problem is in our own hearts that resist and reject God. We reject the joy of submitting to God's word and flourishing as his people as God intended. We reject that. Instead, we let the shouts of this present world be louder in our ears than the whispers of the next. And then we turn on each other. We diminish and we devalue the dignity of our brothers and sisters who stand as image bearers of God. Now, occasionally we look out at the world, we take an honest stock of the world around us and our own hearts, and we wonder, can God's kingdom withstand all of this? Will God's reclaiming, redeeming, reconciling work through Jesus ever withstand all the opposition we see around us? Will we ever live in a world where righteousness reigns under our king? A kingdom where sin and Satan and death will be no more. Here's Kathleen Nielsen again. The Bible's message is worse than we like to think in regard to our sin. But it is much better than we dream in regard to our hope. And if I'm successful this morning, if the Spirit is successful this morning, then we will leave here feeling the hope of the coming kingdom of Christ. We're going to take this complicated story in four scenes, watching God's kingdom patiently gain ground in the life of Israel in the midst of their civil war. And then we're going to apply this, our main idea, trust God's kingdom to withstand all opposition. Scene one, where God's certain purposes are on display, verses one through five. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. Chapter 3, verse 1, this controls the whole narrative. This is what's happening in this narrative. It's what's happening in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, and even last week in chapter 2. David's house becomes stronger. The remnants of Saul's house become weaker. So the narrator in chapter 3, verse 1, gives us an important statement that helps us interpret what's happening everywhere else. Now, this is a long civil war. We know from chapter 2, verse 10, that it's at least two years. And David's position is growing as he's winning battles, and the remnants of Saul's house is losing momentum. Now, David is living in the city of Hebron. It's near the bottom of the screen, if you can see it behind me. Now, while he's living in Hebron, which is the city that God told him to go and inhabit, he has six sons born to him there. That's verses two through five. Six sons are born in Hebron to David and they're born by six different women. Now David's polygamy, that is a commitment to marry more than one spouse, may have been normal for the powerful of his generation, but it sinfully ignored God's design. Sinfully ignored God's design. In Genesis 2, God established marriage between one man and one woman, a covenant, a one flesh union between a man and a woman. 
Here's Kathleen Nielsen for the last time. The fulfillment of God's curse in Genesis 3.16, where God comes to Eve and says, among other things, your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. That dynamic relationally that God predicts in Genesis 3.16 is the cause of much strife that we see evidenced in God's word and evidenced in our own lives. And Kathleen Nielsen says the fulfillment of God's curse is everywhere in evidence in this fallen world of sin. We see it everywhere. And then she says, as Jesus said, the hearts of people are hard and it was not this way from the beginning. And she's quoting Matthew 19, which is talking about Jesus' Jesus's thoughts on divorce. But what's interesting here is Jesus is saying, listen, even if, even if there are allowances, even if there are examples of this, it was not God's heart from the beginning. And we can apply that to polygamy. David's children and these women will pay a heavy price for the chaos which ensues from David's departure from God's creative design. Remember that God does not condone every human action we read about in biblical stories like this one. The fact that it's in the story is not condoning what's happening. We need to understand what's happening in the context of what happens around it in God's word to understand his heart for that specific thing. Or sometimes God allows the consequences of human decisions reveal his thoughts about those decisions. Now God, remember, God promised David that he would be king when he was a teenager in Bethlehem serving as a shepherd. The old prophet Samuel comes and delivers the news. And ever since, David has been waiting and waiting and waiting for promised fulfillment, waiting for God to bring about what God had promised. And David has been careful not to force the issue. On at least two occasions, he has the ability to take Saul's life and doesn't. And even when the Amalekite comes and says, Saul is dead, aren't you happy? David mourns and executes the Amalekite for his lack of wisdom, for taking the life of the Lord's anointed. And even when Saul dies, as we saw a few chapters ago, it will be seven years before David assumes the throne over all of the United, United tribes of Israel. God is not rushing. That's one thing we should take away from David's life. God is not in a hurry. God's purposes will stand. He will fulfill his plans in history, but they will come to pass on his timetable and according to his design, even if we long for them to come more quickly. This is true of David. This is true of you. God will patiently fulfill his purposes in your life, in history, in creation. And no amount of sinful opposition that we'll see evidence this morning will slow him down. That's scene one. In scene two, Abner takes the center stage and we see his selfish ambition clearly in this passage, verses six through 21. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. 
We need to look for narrator comments in these narratives to understand a little bit more of the meaning. The narrator here is saying, is telling us that Abner is making himself strong in Saul's house even while the remnants of Saul's house are weakening in comparison to David. Abner is making himself strong. He's not being made strong. He's not rising to the front as as a leader, and he's not being recognized as such. He is taking the reins and making himself stronger in the house of Saul. In other words, he's not necessarily rising to the surface because he's doing good things. He is causing himself to rise to the surface, even as Saul's house descends. I remember that Abner is the previous king of Israel's general, King Saul's general. Abner is also Saul's cousin. And while Saul and three of his sons and their body, bodyguard die on Mount Gilboa, Abner survives. We're not sure why he's missing, but he survives that critical battle. And after Saul's death, General Abner, Saul's cousin, establishes Saul's last surviving son, Ishbosheth, as king. And Ishbosheth is propped up as king. He's a puppet king. Abner is the one driving. Abner is the one calling the shots. Abner is the one that's propping him up. Look at verse 7. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ai. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone in to my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom of the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Now you could think of a concubine as a type of second-class wife. The practice of taking a concubine is a sad downstream consequence of polygamy. And one common way to secure the kingdom, at least at this point in time, was to take the wives and concubines of the former king as one's own. This practice violated a woman in order to secure political power, a particular kind of wickedness. Now, Rizpah will have her moment later in this story when she demonstrates courage, courage that's so demonstrative that David will see it later and act on her behalf. Now, it's not clear whether Abner is guilty for doing this, but his selfish ambition, the way that he's strengthening himself in Saul's house, opens him up to the charge. And I don't see him deny it. I see him furious about the accusation. And the charge is enough to cause him to turn on Ishbosheth. And he commits to deliver all of Israel over to David. And Ishbosheth is so struck with fear that he can't muster the courage to answer Abner. Now, whether or not Abner is guilty of this, I don't know. Abner holds himself up as one who had steadfast love for, the, for Saul's house. Ishbosheth, I've done nothing but serve you and try to prop you up. And if this is how you'll treat me, then I'll take the kingdom of Israel and I'll pass it to David. 
Now look at verse 12. Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf saying, to whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me. And behold, my hand shall be with you to bring you all of Israel over to you. And David said, good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Now notice Abner's arrogance. Who does all the land of Israel belong to? Me. And I'll deliver all of Israel, all 12 tribes to you so that they'll come under your authority and you will reign over a united kingdom. You may feel differently, but I think Abner's after one thing, and that's power. He was strengthening himself in Saul's house, and he saw the dead end, probably not only from Ishbosheth's question, but also they're losing momentum, as the, the end of the last chapter shows us. And what better way to gain the power that he's after than to deliver all of Israel into David's kingdom and therefore win for himself an influential role? And Abner's offer is met with agreement from David. But David has a precondition. Before he sees Abner's face, he wants Michal, his first wife, returned to him. Now, years earlier, we saw that David was married to Saul's daughter, Michal. And Saul took her from David and gave her to another man as a punishment, as a jab to David. And David longs to have her back. We don't have a lot to go on, but it seems that their love for one another may have been genuine. David seems interested in her, and Michal protects David from her own father. Or perhaps as a test of security, of sincerity, David wants Abner to bring her back before Abner comes himself. Look at verse 14. David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michal, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Baharim. And then Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. Now Saul sinned when he took Michal from David and gave her to this other man. And now she's taken from her new husband and given back to David. It's a tragic back and forth, one that diminishes the image-bearing dignity of Michal, who, though herself a sinner like the rest of us, remains a person. And despite his tears, we probably shouldn't feel too bad for Patiel, who took another man's wife, who, who knew whose wife this was and took her for his own. Yet it's still an uncomfortable scene as Abner turns him back toward home. And we're left wondering what's rolling through the mind and heart of Michal. This is a devastating display of sinful brokenness that she endures as she's treated as property to be traded. Look at verse 17. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel saying, for some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin. And, and then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the house of Benjamin thought good to do. 
When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will go, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my Lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. Now Abner's speech to David or to the elders of Israel reveals that Abner knows full well that God has transferred the kingdom from Saul to David. Abner acknowledges this, but Abner does not apologize for standing in the way of God's word and design. He doesn't confess to being on the wrong side of God's will. He simply says, now is the time. You want David as your king? Then let's make it happen. Let's unite Israel under David. Abner finished strengthening himself in Saul's house, now seems to be maneuvering for power in David's house. And David is open to this unification. It is what God has designed. And after a feast, he sends Abner away in peace, but not everyone is thrilled. And in scene three, Joab, David's general, we see his vengeful anger on display. Look at verse 22. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told to Joab, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king and the king has let him go and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, what have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are going to do. Joab is beside himself. How do you let our chief enemy come into camp, watch our comings and goings, and then send him out with peace? This is the man who has done great damage to Israel. But despite Joab, but despite Joab's speech, he really isn't concerned about David's safety. He's concerned about his own vengeance. Recall from last week when Abner thrust the butt of his spear through the stomach of Asael. Asahel was chasing after Abner on that battle of Mount Gilboa, and Asahel, quick as a gazelle, closes in on Abner, and Abner says, take out one of the young men to my left or to my right, but Asahel is determined, and so he kills him. He strikes him in the stomach, and he dies. Verse 26, when Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner and they brought Abner back from the cistern of Syrah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Now, a major city gate was more of a complex crowded with people and intricate rooms. And Joab pulls Abner aside into one of those rooms somewhere in that complex of the city gate. And later we learn that Joab's brother, his third brother, Abishai, is also there. And when they have Abner alone, they take his life in the same manner that their brother's life was taken at the hands of Abner. Now notice the narrator's point here at the end of verse 26. David did not know about it. 
The narrator wants it to be clear that David is unknowing of what Joab is doing to his arch enemy, Abner. Now, this could very well undo the alliance that is being brokered at this time to unite all of Israel under one unified king, David. But I don't think that's what's at the top of the pile for David, who's been showing patient restraint even towards his enemy Saul all along. Here's scene four, David's confident hope, verses 28 to 39. In verse 28, we read afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. I'm guiltless. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And then he pronounces a curse. May the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or one who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle of Gimeon. Now, the reason that David takes this so seriously is recorded for us in the future when David's about to die and he approaches his son Solomon who's going to take the throne and he tells Solomon, don't let Joab go down to his grave in peace. Why? Because Joab's brother was killed in the time of battle and Joab took vengeance upon Abner in cold blood. There's a difference in how David views the justice of this situation. Verse 31. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes, put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier. They, they buried Abner at Hebron and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner and all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner saying, should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Not only does David condemn Joab, but calls Joab out along with all the people to mourn for Abner. And the sincerity of David's grief leads the people around him to trust him. They're convinced that he had no hand in the murder of Abner, who came under a peace treaty and was murdered. And all David is doing at this point, the narrator tells us, is pleasing the people around him. Now look at verse 35. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore saying, God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it and it pleased them as everything the, kid, the king did pleased all the people. So all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, these men, the sons of Zariah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. More restraint from David. Similar to how he honors Saul, David now honors Abner, Saul's cousin and general. God will act when the timing is right. And so David can wait with confident hope for God to fulfill his purposes. Now let's fast forward the tape 1,000 years to King David's particular descendant. 
The New Testament begins in Matthew chapter 1 this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. David was God's king in David's own generation. But God was preparing us for a greater king in David's descendant. And here's Paul preaching in Acts 13. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. That is, he stayed dead. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, the one who was raised up, the descendant of David, the one who did not see corruption, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. David could not be the king for God's people that we needed. David would need to give birth ultimately to a new descendant, a better descendant. David died faithfully after serving God's purposes in his own generation. That's a job well done for David on the whole. But David could not usher in the kingdom of God. David could not defeat sin. He could not disarm Satan. He could not reconcile God's people to God. Jesus had to do all of that. Jesus had to bear the weight of our sin and then rise in victory, not seeing corruption. And it's through Jesus that the forgiveness of our sins can be ours. And it's through Jesus that the kingdom of God will withstand all sinful opposition. That's the work of Christ on our behalf. Now that's the narrative. Now let's apply this. I want to begin by naming the opposition that stands against God's kingdom in our generation, and then I want to think about how we trust God's kingdom to withstand that opposition. So let's be clear about the opposition. Jesus gave the church the joyful responsibility to proclaim and live out the gospel of the kingdom all the way to the ends of the earth. And after his death and resurrection, Jesus returns to heaven and leaves us, his people, with the task of making disciples all the way to the ends of the earth. It's the church's job to live as an outpost or an embassy of that future kingdom of God. And just as Jesus was opposed, he promises opposition to us. He says, a servant is not greater than his master. And this opposition against the church, against the kingdom of God, will come from multiple directions. Most obviously, there's external opposition coming from those who don't like Jesus or the church. They reject the giver of life and the definer of truth and morality, and so they resist the church. They marginalize Christians. They act as if biblical claims are at best old-fashioned or more accurately these days, hateful. And then there's spiritual opposition. Spiritual opposition coming from our enemy. Satan is an angel who rebelled against God's authority, who opposed God's will and heart. He is not the character dancing on a Grammy stage as tragic as that was. He is a villain with real, potent authority in the world. 
He is not flesh or blood, meaning he is not a human being. He is an angel, but he opposes God and the church. He lies about the truth and he blinds human beings to the gospel. There is spiritual opposition, but there's also subversive opposition. I don't know if it's the right word, but opposition that comes from people who claim to be a part of the church, people who profess to be Christians. They yell about the Bible, but they do not submit to the Bible themselves. And so they distort Jesus's gospel by being offensive themselves, not letting the gospel do the offending. They lie about the truth and they become subversive, treasonous, opposing, polluting the message and the witness of the church. Dale Ralph Davis, commentator on the life of David, writes this. Let Abner preach to you. Let Abner tell you that it is possible to know the truth but not embrace the truth. Abner knew what God was doing. Abner did not submit to what God was doing. Abner wanted his own power and influence. Let Abner preach to you. It is possible to know the truth, but not embrace the truth, to quote the truth, but not submit to the truth, to hold the truth, yet to assault the truth. Abner isn't concerned about God's word or kingdom. Abner is concerned about Abner. And we would all benefit from carefully considering how much of Abner's heart beats in our own chest. And then there's internal opposition. Living as the church in a fallen world that's been affected by sin is harrowing work. Our bodies weather disease and aging and death. Our world endures disasters and pandemics. Our hearts wrestle and resist and sometimes surrender to sin. Circumstances, difficult circumstances, tempt us to discouragement. And so our sin or our despair, though we belong to Christ, can bring opposition to the work of Jesus in the world. We can detract through our own sin and failings. And to finish the task Jesus gave us, to extend his kingdom peace, we must contend with all of this opposition. And there are moments in history and moments in our life as his people when sin seems so unbelievably overwhelming. How will God's kingdom purposes withstand all of this out there and all of this in here? Will the church survive? But the mission of the church, brothers and sisters, does not depend on us. The success of God's kingdom does not finally rest on us. Trust God's kingdom to withstand opposition. Three ways to do this. Three ways, places to put our trust. First, trust his plan. The church, that's God's plan A. Trust the plan. There is no plan B. It's the church who takes the gospel to the ends of the earth. As imperfect as we are, it is the church that is God's plan A. And incredibly, Jesus leaves us with that task. He says in Matthew 24, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And it's the church that does the proclaiming. We herald and announce the gospel. We live righteous lives. We endure suffering and persecution with hope. We endure hardship and cost for the sake of the lost. 
We build our weeks and our lives around the local church because we're convinced that the local church is God's plan A. And so everything about us revolves around this group of relationships. Trust His plan and then trust His Word. We build our life together on the foundation of God's Word. Our conviction is that the Bible unfolds the reality of sin's damning effects and the reality of Jesus' saving work. And so we build all of our life on this Bible. And this compels us. We read it. We preach it. We sing it. We pray it. We share it. We disciple it. That's what we're about. And we trust that God's Word will accomplish His purposes as we do. We need clarity, not cleverness. We need conviction, not compromise. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, Paul says, the word of the cross, the word of the gospel is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Trust his plan, trust his word, finally trust his spirit. The Holy Spirit guarantees the work of the church. Praise Jesus, it's not up to us alone. Without the Spirit, the work of the Great Commission would be a burden too heavy to bear. We would collapse under the weight of the commission. But Jesus says in John 16, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away, though he's coming back. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. It is the Holy Spirit that will root out the sin in our hearts, conforming us into Jesus' image. It's the Holy Spirit who will propel Christians across the street and across oceans to share the gospel. It's the Holy Spirit that will make our evangelism effective. It's the Holy Spirit that will give life to the word that we proclaim. It's the Holy Spirit who will gather a people from every tribe and tongue to worship the King. Trust His Spirit trust his word, trust his plan, the church. Now, opposition to Jesus abounds. It abounds around us and it crawls up from within us. And as you sit here this morning, I'm not sure where sin's opposition is most threatening to you. If you're intimidated or wondering or questioning as you look at the world around us, or if you're discouraged because you're looking at your own heart and you're wondering Will God's kingdom work ever be able to withstand the sin in my heart or the sin in the world? Listen, God's kingdom will withstand all and every opposition. Jesus' death and resurrection is our guarantee. The sin burden on the back of creation, it will be lifted. Physical bodies will be free of disease and age. Death will be no more. Satan and sin and death will be thrown into the lake of fire. And as his church, we now go to extend his kingdom peace to the very ends of the earth. And as we go, we begin to see the effects of sin retreat from our hearts and retreat from the world. We live together as an outpost and an embassy of that future kingdom, tasting what we will one day feast on. And one day, we will hear loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever.
Lord Jesus, we look to you this morning. We rely on the helper that you gave us. We throw ourselves on the local church, trusting that the imperfect church, strengthened by your word, being made alive through your gospel power, and strengthened by your own strength, will take the gospel of the kingdom to the very ends of the earth. Would you encourage our hearts now as we stand and sing? Amen.